What's up, everybody? My name is Eric, and you're listening to the SideQuesting Podcast. I have one announcement before we get started today. Our podcast is now available on a ton of different major platforms all over the internet, such as Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, just to name a few. If you happen upon our humble podcast in your internet wanderings, it would mean a lot if you could leave us a like, rating, or review. It really helps us out, it helps other people find us, and it helps us connect more with our audience. If you'd like to keep up with everything going on here at the SideQuesting Podcast, you can follow us on Twitter, at PodSideQuesting. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Riptide104, and my co-host Tom, at RedRival26. You can even email us at SideQuestingPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for all the support, and enjoy the show. How's it going, everybody? You know me. My name is Eric. You're listening to the SideQuesting Podcast. Appreciate you guys tuning in this Sunday. I hope you're having a wonderful weekend, wonderful day, wonderful month. Whenever in life, in time, you may be listening to this podcast, I hope you are doing well. My co-host Tom is unfortunately out again this week. The adulting life has been hitting him pretty hard. Uh, Work has been just putting him on the schedule whenever they feel like it. I'm hoping to have him back relatively soon here. Hopefully he can get back to his normal schedule. And uh, another small note too, I'm going to make this podcast as long as I possibly can. uh, Because of the simple fact we, me and my fiance, adopted a new puppy this week. We rescued a puppy. She is 11 weeks old. Her name is Sora. She is a Aussie healer lab mix. So that's been really interesting. And if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that we have a one-year-old golden retriever named Milo that we adopted last year, just before the pandemic started, actually. So that's been a really interesting dynamic, trying to introduce an energetic new puppy to a energetic one-year-old golden retriever who is one-year-old, but also still kind of a puppy. Definitely an interesting challenge. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of sleepless nights. It's been rewarding, frustrating, a lot of learning curves along the way. This is the uh, the first, Milo was my first puppy that we ever trained from puppyhood into adulthood. Uh, and I gotta say the psyche of approaching the second dog is actually a little more interesting with milo i was obsessed with everything he was doing i watched him closely at all times i was afraid of him to jump off of couch and ledges and stuff like that when he was a little puppy i was so terrified that he was going to hurt himself eat something that was going (laughs) to upset his stomach with the second dog with sora i've found that i've kind of just let her do whatever i haven't been as overbearing i've just kind of let her explore and do whatever she needs to do i've let her jump off of things i've let milo kind of knock her around a little bit as they learn how to play with each other and i i I don't know it's just interesting and i've heard a lot of people that have kids too say it's kind of like that way with kids where you have the first kid and you're really protective and overbearing with the first kid just to make sure they don't get hurt and the second kid comes along and you're just kind of like oh whatever second kid so that's been really fun uh sora she's really sweet she's got a heart of gold and milo's been trying really hard he is always super hyper when the puppy comes around 
but he is the sweetest and most loving dog you could ever meet. He just wants to be friends with everybody. He just wants to constantly play with everybody. And that's the only thing he cares about. But we've had to keep him separate for a little while here. She's currently taking a nap in the other room. I'm hoping, hoping she'll be quiet and sleep long enough for me to be able to get out a little bit of a podcast episode here. Something interesting that I have learned, I wish somebody would have warned me about what being a parent to a new puppy was like with a one-year-old dog. And my fiance and I were kind of talking about it the other day, and I told her that I felt like being a parent to a new puppy while trying to also parent the other dog that's been in the house for a year, uh, it's kind of like being a referee for an MMA match where the two fighters are fighting each other constantly. And then for whatever inexplicable reason, the fighters decide to turn against you, the ref, as well. So it's kind of just (laughs) like refing a free-for-all match where you're not even safe. But she's really sweet. We've, we already love her already. Uh, we know she's going to be a great addition to our family. Fun fact, uh, I have a notorious streak of naming dogs, naming female dogs specifically after male Kingdom Hearts characters. My parents' dog, uh, she's a little chihuahua mix with something. We rescued her when I was still living back with my parents. And she's like a white and brown dog. And so I wanted to name her Tara. And to... to throw them off the trail that I was trying to name her after a video game character. I said, oh, Tara is Latin for Earth. So they bought that and I was like, oh, yeah, but it's obviously influenced after the Kingdom Hearts character, Tara, who is a male. So that's a little interesting tidbit for you there. And so Sora, uh, as an Aussie healer lab mix, she has one brown eye and one blue eye. And I learned that in my research that Sora is actually, it's either the Japanese word for Sky or it's like related to uh, it's a conjugation of the japanese word for sky and she has one eye that's like sky blue it's really bright bright so if i'm feeling embarrassed about telling her that yeah i named her after sora from kingdom hearts another male video game character i can just say oh yeah sora is the you know uh japanese word for sky or sky blue or whatever and kind of twist it that way i almost wish she would have been a male dog because then i would have named her sasuke because i know in naruto they have the crazy different color eyes but maybe that'll be for another time. So enough about that. I'm going to try and get as much talking in as I can. Uh, I still want to, because Tom's work schedule has been a little crazy, we haven't been able to have our guests on like I wanted to. We had a guest spot lined up for this week, but it kind of got thrown out the window. People got busy with stuff. This isn't our primary thing that we do. We kind of do this around our work schedules. It's for fun. This doesn't. This literally makes me zero money. And it's just something I can do to kind of express myself, to get out my thoughts about video games. Honestly, yeah, I feel like everybody should start a podcast just because it's almost kind of like having a journal or a diary. You just kind of get to come in your own space, be by yourself, and talk about things that you love or your thoughts. And it can be about literally anything. I've seen so many different podcasts, things that people do. People do gaming podcasts. People do cooking podcasts. True crime podcasts I know are huge right now because everybody loves crime. Everybody loves murder. It's <laughs> kind of messed up, but the stories are just so intense. There's sports podcasts, you can, politics. There's so many things you can talk about. Uh, I work in the construction industry, and there are construction industry podcasts, and dudes that trim trees have podcasts. There's so many things that people talk about that people listen to. I highly recommend just going to do it. Even if you get one person to listen, even if you get 10 people to listen, it doesn't matter. You really feel a lot better after having kind of been in your own space and talk, just talk about something that you love because you don't normally get to do that for just an hour or however long, just 
unstopped. So uh, we have an interesting topic today. We're going to keep it with games. I'm going to talk about another side topic. We are eventually going to have our guest speaker on. We are eventually going to talk about big Pokemon news that I've been saying for the last month now. We're going to talk about because there is huge news that we do want to talk about. I just wanted to have the right guest speaker on and I would feel bad talking about it because Tom and our guest speaker love Pokemon so much and I do too. I just think it would be a better overall podcast for us to all talk about that together. So today's topic is going to be something interesting. It's going to be related to the topic of game design. And this story popped up over the week where a thread of Twitter or people, a thread of video game designers on Twitter started talking about the things that they found the most frustrating to animate in video games. And one of the things that constantly came up was all of these animation studios, all these designers that work for all these studios, big, small, AAA, indie, whatever, consistently said doors were one of the most frustrating things to animate, to code, to make work in a video game. So today we're going to be talking about doors and just a little bit of video game design stuff in general. So yeah, if I still have your attention, which I hope I do, we're going to be talking about doors in video games. One of the most exciting topics you could possibly think about. And you don't even think about doors when you're playing video games. You just blow by doors because you're trying to get to the rest of the game. But as I read more of the developer comments, as I read more of the stories that were written about this topic, it's actually super fascinating and kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit on what it's like to design games and what that process is like behind the scenes. Now, this all got started a couple days. I don't remember exactly which day it was. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday this week. It all started with a developer by the name of Stefan Hubblebrinks. I really hope I'm saying that right. Stephen Hubblebrinks. He was a death trash developer. It was a game that was put out by Crafting Legends. I think they're a little bit smaller of a studio. I have heard of them before. I didn't do too much research into it because I really wanted to talk more about what he was saying. And when somebody asked him what the problem with doors and video games were, he came up with this really in-depth answer that I thought was super interesting. And I'll just read to you right now. Doors are complicated to have in games and have all sorts of possible bugs, mostly because they're a dynamic funnel and block in the pathing, potentially locked, potentially destructible, but in general because they sit potentially between any game interaction or character to character situation from here to there. AAA devs hate them too. The Assassin's Creed series, otherwise full of stuff, doesn't have them. So when a small indie developer adds them to their first game, having combat and non-combat situations as well as multiple input movement schemes it was a lot of pain so this kind of kicked off the conversation online about how difficult doors were to get down in just about any kind of game that you put them in and i didn't notice that before about the assassin's creed series i'll have to go back and play some of them because you'd have to think that putting a shit ton of doors in a game as big as assassin's creed would be a huge pain in the ass i'm gonna have to go check that out because i never noticed that before i'd be super interesting and more people started to pile on this as this post kind of went viral and people were talking about it uh boss fight design director and former bioware austin designer damon schubert he also weighed in and he described with more details what kind of issues you can have when implementing doors one of the big things he talked about was npc pathing and the way npcs interact with the world now npcs in video games and 
Of course, everything I'm going to say, I am generalizing because I am not a game designer. I don't know how games are made. I understand some of the concepts, but it's way beyond me. People way more talented make these games. And I'm just kind of going based off of what I can gather from the story and the context I know of years of playing video games. So he pointed out that NPC pathing is mostly run by AI who... And the AI makes decisions for the NPCs based on the environments in the game. So if an NPC is trying to path its way to a certain spot, it might not be able to find its way to that spot because of how doors interact with their paths. Or if they try to use the door at the same time as, let's say, a non-NPC, like the player or another NPC. Uh, he said there's visual problems too related to doors clipping through other objects or getting stuck or related to the animation of a player reaching out to open the door. So you have to think about that. That just adds a couple of more, <laughs> like right off the bat, you think of a door as just something that's, oh, it opens and closes. But no, a door is unique in the structure of video games because most video game structures are immovable and not destructible. So like a wall of a house, you can't get through a wall of a house. It's just there to be like a barrier to create an enclosed space. But the door is the point where that closed space can potentially be open if that door is open. Uh, this was a quote about how NPCs utilize or how doors can create problems for NPCs. I think this this story was out of uh, PC Gamer. It's easy to see how doors can exponentially complicate the logic of a game. Say an NPC in The Witcher 3 wants to turn in for the night. Without any doors to consider, all the AI has to do is map a route from the character's current position to the bed. Throw a door or two in the way, though, and the NPC now needs to recognize there's a door in the way and have logic to control how it interacts with the door. But what happens if two NPCs use the same door at the same time? How does the NPC know whether a door opens towards or away from them? Uh, Marcin Pieperzowski, who used to be a QA lead on The Witcher 3, says that a boss fight in the prologue had a door that would lock and then unlock after players defeated a boss. During testing, the team found a whopping 12 different scenarios which would cause the door not to unlock, trapping the player. Pieper Zowski, and I know I'm saying that wrong, I apologize so much. He said that the fix was just to not lock the door in the first place. So all of that work and planning, you have to hope that the character, the player just doesn't notice that the door is not locked because they couldn't get the locked door to work the way they intended to during that boss fight because there were... 12 up to 12 different scenarios which they would discover which would cause the door to glitch and not work and the player would just be trapped in the prologue area that blows my mind if you think about it that's absolutely crazy and then the story went on to report that there was a hilarious story about the witcher 3 2 and this was during the i think i think it's called the blood and wine dlc there was a part of the story where they were trying to fast track Geralt towards the part of the story they wanted me to get to get to and i'm not too familiar with this because i've played the witcher 3 but it's so big that i never got to the dlc so the quest design team and i i believe i might just tell you guys where the story is so you can read it because i might be paraphrasing it so the quest design team decided that to keep Geralt on the right path the best thing to do would just be to when that quest triggers to send out a command that locked all the doors so he couldn't go into any houses or anywhere he wasn't supposed to go and then when the quest ended to send out a trigger to unlock all those doors. But the thing they didn't notice about that was the quest command wasn't just telling the doors within the vicinity of the quest to unlock. It unlocked every single door in the game, even the ones that weren't meant to be unlocked. So 
if you don't know this, The Witcher 3 is a huge game. There are tons of doors in it, and there are tons of places you can go in. There are some doors that are there purely for cosmetic reasons, because if you go past that door, they didn't design anything past that door because you're not supposed to be there technically. So this would often lead to people just walking into doors they weren't supposed to and just falling through the abyss of the map and just <laughs> rendering the game pretty much unplayable. So before the dev team figured this out, before the level design team is, they had to go through and check every single door in the game. And for those of you that don't know, The Witcher 3 is fucking enormous. It's huge. Thousands upon thousands of potential doors probably to go and check before they found out that this this quest was the one that was causing this. And then what had to happen was the quest team had to go through and tag every door that would be locked or unlocked during the quest to make sure that it wouldn't also unlock every other door. And like, holy shit. That's insane if you think about it, that one little command you could put in a quest could break every single door that you put in your game. Like, it's such a simple item that you just don't normally think about it. It's just a door. How hard could that be? The designer we mentioned earlier, Damien Schubert, he went on to elaborate a little bit more on Twitter, and I'll read a couple of his, his tweets from his thread here. Even the act of opening a door is clunky as hell. Either a player reaches out and puts their hand on the doorknob, which feels slow and requires lining up animations, or doors fly open magically automatically, which breaks the immersion you're probably hoping to attain. This immersion breaking is really the core of the issue. What breaks immersion is when a game aspect mechanically draws attention to itself in a negative fashion. Doors, and then he puts this in all caps, even implemented well, do this frequently, and players usually don't even notice that doors are, aren't there if the developer decides to not put them in the game. So, you, it really just makes you appreciate more what these developers go through in putting a game like this together, because he's 100% right. If you have a door in a game, and... Part of what makes a game great is because it triggers your brain into being immersed in the world. So if you have something that's goofy, like a door just say is flying open when you walk up to it, I mean, that's kind of funny, but it also kind of breaks the immersion that you have that is one of the reasons why you enjoy a game so much. And if especially if it's supposed to be like a realistic game, that you can't just have doors like fucking flying open and doing crazy stuff because you know if one of the selling points of your game is realism then then that's not gonna fly and then of course you have to have animate characters reaching for a doorknob turning a doorknob pulling the door open or closing it or whatever you got to do that's potentially hundreds of more man hours you got to figure out how to make that animation look real and i remember also reading that one of the things that video game designers and animators hate doing is designing hands and designing handoffs because hands are a complex thing there's five digits that all have to move separately from one another i'm sitting here moving my fingers behind the screen you can't see it it's actually super entertaining so hands are weird and you have to animate all the digits of the hand moving so for a character to hold out something and then for the another character to pick it up that's a very complex exchange that you have to animate there and that's why you'll see most of the time when you see characters handing something or someone hands your main character something they'll just reach out to the air and do like a dropping motion and your character will just put his hand out like a receiving motion and it's just very simple it's not complicated at all it's not the most realistic thing but it's almost not worth the developer's time to you know, try and make that as smooth as possible because 
it's just it's just not or sometimes they won't even show you like the handle just be below the screen if a cutscene is playing where you can see it and like it'll show the arm move and you're just assuming that the character is receiving something based on that arm movement you don't actually see the hands so that's super interesting and this is where uh the last of us 2 co-director kurt marginal jumped in i'm sure i'm butchering all these names so i apologize and he kind of said the same thing in regards to when they are making the last of us 2 with the realism thing because the last of us series is incredibly based on realism it's an incredible looking game and one of the core tenets of the game is stealth this is what he had to say we knew that doors in a stealth scenario would add some level of player authorship to the space and give more opportunities to escape situations. They block line of sight and slow enemies down. This was in line with wanting the player to reestablish stealth more often. But we are also a game that is incredibly polished animation-wise. If a player is going to open a door, it can't just magically fly open. The character has to reach to the doorknob and push it open. But what about closing it behind you? How do you do that while sprinting? We played around with several prototypes to allow the player to manually close the door behind them. They were not all great. We tried holding buttons, all kinds of weird schemes. Then how do you animate it? Don't want to suck the player into an animation while escaping. Long story short, in combat tension, the doors will slowly automatically close. This is the most player favoring, as player door opening slows you down very little. We don't even take control away, but they block AI more effectively. Marginal went on to add that effectively Naughty Dog had to create an entire new physics object for the door that players can push but can also push the player. An enormous challenge for any studio. That story alone is pretty nuts because that just goes to show the amount of thought that is put into something as simple as this object. And he's absolutely right. The Last of Us and Last of Us 2 are built around stealth and doors are very important because if you open a door at a wrong time, it'll tip off an enemy that you're there. If you get behind a door at a wrong time and it closes, then that breaks line of sight and potentially reestablish stealth. And like he said, that's a very interesting way of looking at a door as establishing player authorship of the level. It gives you more variety to the way that you want to play the game. And it's not just solid walls that kind of box you in. You know, you have escape options, you have entrance options based on the doors that they put in the game. So, of course, that has to be something that's very finely tuned and very polished to make that work in a game where stealth is as important as it is like The Last of Us. And it's just not something that you think about. And obviously, the animation of the door has to work well because when you're trying to escape and get somewhere where you can hide, any second that you lose trying to escape could potentially spell the death of you. And so it's really interesting how they came up with this solution to have an object where the player can push the door after having the doorknob reaching and turning animation, but that the door can slowly close behind them. Because if the door just slam closed really fast, that would kind of break immersion. But if the door is slowly closing as you're running away and then the door closes, you know, that helps you reestablish stealth and makes you feel like you escaped. So that's super interesting. And just to hear that they basically had to build a custom physics object for a door that would do that is <laughs> pretty freaking crazy. It's, it's pretty unbelievable. And then there are a bunch of people that kept chiming in about other stuff that kind of had uh, remedy gameplay designer, Sergey Mohav. Uh, he said that in the game at control uh, more man hours went into designing the door system in that game than went into 
the abilities and weapon systems in that game. So for a developer to tell you that, hey, we spent more times on on doors than the the core tenets of combat and abilities in this game. That for me was the most telling. And it's just like, wow, you spent more time trying to figure out how doors would work in your game than the actual gameplay. But when you take that in context of everything else that these other developers have said, it makes a lot of sense. So all this talk about doors got me thinking about game design at kind of every level. And it's not just doors that are complicated, but when you kind of think about why doors would be such a problem because of NPC pathing, because so many different little things that you don't expect could impact the way that door behaves. And if that door is blocking something significant it, it, and you can't get past it, you can't make progress. So of course, it's going to be a super challenging thing because doors are a great tool to block players off from where you don't want them to be yet. But when you do want them to go there, the door has to function properly. And it's just crazy to think about all the little things that you wouldn't even like something unrelated to like the door itself. Like maybe it's say like you swing your sword and like the sword hits the door. Like that's something you have to consider or the way that the door interacts since it's a it's not a static object the way the door interacts with solid walls that are around it. That stuff's just super crazy to think about. Like if you don't, if one polygon is out of place out of that wall from the house you designed, it could cause the door to go absolutely apeshit. Or if the NPC can't figure out how to get past the door on its way to going to bed at night, then it's just going to be walking into the door and can't go. Can't, and you walk by that and you, that's going to obviously be hilarious. And one of the first things I thought about, obviously, and I keep, we've talked about this a couple times on this podcast was Cyberpunk 2077 and how big that world is. That world's enormous. It's one of the most detailed and realized worlds that's probably ever been released in a game. And just imagine if developers have this much problem with doors. Just imagine everything that CD Projekt Red had to account for when making Night City that has vehicles in it and has crime in it and has different ways to interact and has doors and has all this other stuff and shooting and all this other stuff that you have to account for in this and it's a complex story with branching paths and all these things have to work together to tell a narrative you really start to look at a game as a machine with thousands of moving parts that all have to work together and if one of the parts is broken nothing you can really i mean one of the parts is broken it could cause <laughs> other parts of the game to not function and it, it just reminds me of like i told that witcher story earlier where the dev team had to go back and check every single door in their humongous game imagine that's what CD Projekt Red would have had to do to find the glitches in their game, check every single object and go through, meticulously comb through their game to find the things that were broken and they just didn't have the time to do that. And it launched in a state that was less than optimized. PC wasn't bad. Obviously, they weren't done working on it for console. And it just really makes you appreciate a little more what these developers go through the hours that they put in. If you expect to go into the video game industry, you're not working 40 hours a week, five days a week. 
it's just you're not. This is a labor of love that these guys are doing 70, 80, 90 hours a week, six days a week, sometimes seven when it gets close, when they when they put them in crunch. It's not easy to just throw a game out there. Even when something bad that we think is bad comes out, it took tons of hours to try and do. So Cyberpunk is one example. I obviously if you if you go back to one game I love to to reference uh is Sonic 06. That's a very broken game. And obviously they just didn't have the resources, the manpower to test that game because so many of the way things interact in that game are just broken with so many other things that it's just an unplayable nightmare. And this was before the day that you could issue patches <laughs> via the internet to fix something like this. If you've listened to any of the work that we did before this, we had a different podcast that we kind of fell off of a couple years ago. We kind of touched on this topic a little bit, and we touched on it the way we talked about it was in the scheme of Overwatch. So Overwatch is a game that's been out for several years now, and Overwatch has gone through a lot of changes. So Overwatch isn't just a game where you release it and forget it. Overwatch is a living game that is constantly updated, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly, getting constantly balanced so that it remains in a playable state. New characters are getting added all the time. So the development on that game is never really done because the people at Blizzard have to continually work on the game to figure out how to keep it in an optimal state for the community to play. And this is, becomes especially challenging when you throw new characters into the mix, right? When you come out with a character like Echo, for example, or Moira, or Wrecking Ball, or, or whatever. So all of the heroes and characters in Overwatch have physics attached to them. Their movement, their weight, the way they do things, their abilities they use, all affect the environment and other characters around them. It's like when Lucio does his boop, and, and it's a blast. It blasts different people differently based on how heavy they are. Heavy they are. Tracer goes further than a Reinhardt would because she's lighter. So, and you could you could talk of a tons of different things about this because Overwatch is a great example. And League of Legends is a great example in another way too. So when you, when you release a new character like an Echo or a Wrecking Ball or a Moira and you come up with a kit for that character of certain abilities, you have to... So most of the times that the kit, you come up with the kit and it gets tested, right? And you see how that kit would actually work in gameplay. So you would have to test every one of Echo's abilities against every other character and every other ability in the game to see how those abilities interact with one another. And that's a lot. You're talking potentially hundreds and thousands of different interactions with different characters doing different things that have to be figured out because millions of people across the world play this game and millions of matches are happening at once. So you have to figure out how all of those combinations are going to work together. For example, let's say you have Ryan using his shield and Wrecking Ball comes out and he does this, he swings up into the air with his grapple and does a slam down. You have to figure out how that slam interacts with Reinhardt's shield and also interacts with Reinhardt. And you have to figure out how, let's say, if the Wrecking Ball is slamming down and you boop it, how those two forces interact with each other. 
and you have to figure out how may freezing wrecking ball as he's coming down out of the sky to slam on the ground how that affects his movement too so it's a lot to do something like that it's a lot of things you have to figure out because there are potentially hundreds or thousands of different interactions that wrecking ball slammed on the ground could have with other heroes abilities not to mention heroes abilities being used together because of different team comps on wrecking ball as he's coming down like that to me is just is absolutely mind-boggling to try and do something like that because you have a game that you get to a state like let's say i don't remember the exact order things came out let's say you release moira right and you get the game to the point where like moira feels good in the game and then you introduce wrecking ball so the fact that hero has to show up in that game and be competitively viable then kind of you're basically just throwing all your other work out the window and say okay like because now we have to change the game to implement this new character wrecking ball in the game and he has to feel powerful to be able to do damage and fill his role as a tank but he also has to feel like you can easily kill him so the different adjustments they have to make to different heroes to accommodate wrecking ball being in the game is is mind-boggling and again blizzard is a pretty big company but they only have you know dozens if not maybe a couple hundreds of people testing the different interactions testing matches playing things like that and overwatch is a little bit smarter about that because sometimes they put new changes or perceived changes up on the the test server so that masses of gamers can test and they can collect data so it might be the case that maybe mccree's shot is too powerful against wrecking balls so then you have to kind of dial that back but then you're inadvertently nerfing McCree's interaction with also every other hero. So it's a really fine line of Blizzard trying to figure out how to fine-tune and fine-balance their game. Not just in the amount of damage heroes do and take, but also considering all their abilities, the environments that they interact in. You also have to go and test Wrecking Ball's grappling hook and smash down on a bunch of different maps because all the maps are different. And then you have to test them on all the different maps with a bunch of different team comps to see how they interact with that. Because if something weird happens where, let's say, Wrecking Ball is slamming down and Lucio boops him and he hits a part of the wall that you don't expect and it causes him to go ricocheting off into space off the map and die, you know, that's <laughs> that's something that could be easily exploited. So our conversation about doors has evolved into something more complex because if a static item as much as a door is... A pain in the ass to animate and put into a game just imagine how difficult other things are also so next time you're bitching about a patch that hits overwatch or a change to a different game you have to understand and appreciate the amount of time that when it wasn't just something they're just like it's not just a dial in a closet they can just turn down and they, they just turn it down and throw it out in the wild without considering it they have to also consider how that affects every other character in the game because let's say you turn down mccree's gun damage so not only does that inter that only does that affect his interaction with every character in the game, and vice versa, that affects every character's interaction with him. So now because his shot's not as powerful, maybe you can run different, more different viable comps. So that effectively changes the very nature of the way the game is played. And I'm struggling to talk about it because it's just kind of blowing my mind as I'm thinking it out loud. And there are probably tons more examples like this across any game that you could possibly think of. And the more complicated the game is, the 
harder it's going to be to figure out all of these questions to make a well-balanced game. The more complicated and realistic games look, the harder it's going to be to do this. To <laughs> Doors are going to get harder just because games are going to get more complex. One of the things this has got me thinking about is how games have evolved through the years, especially from the, the concept of doors, right? And one of the things I was thinking back to was recently having been obsessed with speedruns of Super, of Super Mario 64. And you can see, well, at the time, that game was way ahead of its time and revolutionary. It hasn't necessarily aged the best because people exploit the hell out of that game to do insane shit that break that game. You can jump backwards and fly up staircases. You, If you hit a pixel per perfect position, you can warp through doors that obviously weren't meant to be warped through. So I think that kind of hammers the point home is that even back then, when you're designing these cutting edge revolutionary games like Mario 64, like Ocarina of Time, these developers were still having these problems with environments because the only way that Mario speed 64 speedruns are possible is by breaking the game, warping through doors, warping through walls you won't meant to, breaking the literal physics engine of the game to, and not to mention just unbelievable next level play. I don't know if, I mean, maybe... Nintendo and some of the people that made these older games that you can break really easily and do speedruns knew that maybe they had an idea that these things were theoretically possible, but maybe they never thought that people would be as good at games as they are. But surprise, they are. And especially in the speedrunning community, which is full of some of the most incredible gamers I've ever seen and some of the most insanely talented and insanely driven people that you will ever meet who do thousands of runs practicing day in and day out to shave mere seconds milliseconds off of world records i don't think they ever expected that people would get to the point where they'd be that good at a particular game and so maybe they knew about certain things being broken and just didn't worry about it but now today that's something that developers have to worry about because people are that good at games and they know that people look for these exploits to try and complete games as fast as possible. So they have to figure out how they can f figure these exploits out too. They have to anticipate everything ahead of time so that people can't effectively break their game. And pretty much at such high levels of gameplay, it's almost impossible because the game just doesn't expect you to be able to do those things. My favorite example of this is when Breath of the Wild came out, uh, Miyamoto and the Nintendo staff pretty much taunted speedrunners and said, hey, good luck speedrunning this game. Like, If you can do it, go ahead and do it. Because once you get off the plateau, you pretty much have freedom in Breath of the Wild. You can go straight to the castle to fight Ganon if you want. And I don't think they ever expected the people to be able to abuse the tools they gave them in the way that they do. Like, you see people... Use magnesis, use time, and use time stop. Use all this crazy shit to power up a hit on a boulder, and then launch it thousands of feet in a certain direction to get where you're going super fast. And 
you never underestimate the gaming community to be able to figure out how to break your game to do things as fast as possible. I don't know, I'm kind of rambling here because I kind of covered all the points that I wanted to. I guess the point, the main point I'm trying to make is next time you're angry at a game or a developer because of something happened or something broke, you have to understand that gaming is a complex business. Especially development is a super complex business. Just think about the door. How complicated the door is by itself. And then maybe your anger will subside. <laughs> May the door grant you peace. Just think about everything that went into having to make that game. How many man hours, all the things they potentially had to test. And also combine that with the fact that gaming is a business. You're under time constraints to figure these things out. Every day you don't hit your launch mark costs the development company money. That's an insane amount of stress to not only put out a product that pleases the general fan base and gets good reviews, but also makes your company money because you've spent three, four years developing this game, uh, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars into research, development, man hours, marketing, all this stuff. And for your game to come out and just not perform the way it's supposed to is devastating especially giving corporate pressure because I'm convinced that not everybody that works in video games at the top is a person that came from video games. I'm assuming they just got hired because they're like, oh, CEO, he knows how to run a company where running a video game development company is not the same as running a giant retailer, is not the same as, you know, running a car manufacturer. Every business is different in its own right, and this is especially true for video games. You know, although I suppose that maybe car manufacturing and video games are similar in the aspect that they both have doors. I don't know. It's come full circle. We're talking about doors. So just next time you're super angry or you want to go leave a bad review on Metacritic or whatever, you know, nobody puts out a game with the intention of pissing you off. They want you to play something that is a labor of love. It's the same thing with this podcast. Like, not a lot of people listen to this podcast. And I, and I never expect it to get to the point where it's heard around the world. But the simple act of putting something out in the world that you created and hoping people like it is terrifying. It's absolutely one of the scariest things you'll ever do. I haven't even shared this podcast with a lot of my friends yet because I'm not... I, it's, it's hard to explain, but I know that people that are artists or people that create things too... Um, even my cousin Mike, when I was talking to him on the podcast, when I interviewed him, it's just putting these songs that you've worked so hard on out into the world. Like you want people to like them because you've put your heart and soul into them. And just one of the saddest things that you could think of is people not liking it after you put all that work into it because it makes you feel like you just wasted your time. No game developer is trying to waste your time unless it's like a cash grab game, like a online mobile game maybe then you're trying to waste your time just so they can make as much money off of you i don't know but no one is intentionally re releasing anything just to piss you off so i guess that's kind of my thoughts on doors and video game design i know it's a lot deeper of a topic that we could definitely get into i know there are many many more examples of this i just mentioned a couple of the games that i thought of that 
come to my mind. Uh, if you want more examples of this, you should definitely read up the development of Monster Hunter World, which is another one of my favorite games. So what they did on that game was this was the first Monster Hunter that was kind of an open world. Everything was in the same ecosystem because you used to have to chase monsters on different loading like zones and go through loading screens and stuff. So in order to make this game, this is something they've never done before, is they had to essentially design all the monsters and then design all the monster interactions with one another first before they could do anything else in this game because they had to know how the monsters would interact with one another and they had to take care of all those glitches before they could justify letting a player explore that world. And these monsters are huge. They're ginormous. And so, of course, when you have a scenario where four of the monsters on the map all show up in the same location and they're huge as fuck... (laughs) It creates some interesting things where it's it's as good as it can be given the technology and the circumstances, but uh, body parts start to bend a little bit, uh, animals start to clip into the ground, it, things get a little funky, and honestly you just pray and hope that some of the monsters will leave before you just die. So if you have the chance to read up and look up on that stuff, it's it's really interesting because, again, another perfect example, you have to design all the monsters you have to design all the ways that the monsters interact with one another then you have 14 different weapons in monster hunter world you have to design the way that all those monsters all those weapons do different damage to different body parts some weapons can slice some weapons can bludgeon some can pierce some can chop off tails some can break body parts some can some can't they cause elemental damage to different monsters depending on what their elemental affinity is like holy fuck that's a complicated game it's incredibly complicated. So I would just read into that. If it's just another example of the way that things interact in a video game with other things. I mean, I don't think Monster Hunter World has any doors. I think there are doors, but I think I don't think it shows you going through them. Actually, I think they're just like, oh, hold this to go inside. And then it just flashes to like a black screen and then you're inside because they're like, fuck doors. We already had to animate you know 30 different types of dragon creatures fighting each other we're not gonna fuck with doors <laughs> so um yeah just i'm sure like i said there are plenty of other examples i'd love if you want to tweet them at me i'd love to talk to him about it because i've been thinking about this topic all week uh we could talk about this for honestly hours with and we could go through thousands of different video games skyrim's another one that i'm thinking about you have to test the fusor don every object that you create in the game to make sure it doesn't fucking break your game so yeah, just think about it and think about just think about some of your favorite games and just think about those aspects of it. And yeah, I think that through that we'll have a greater appreciation of the way games are designed and see that the things that we love really are amazing. It's not just a guy on the screen that you're moving. It's this incredible mechanical work of wonder that provides us entertainment so like i said guys we'll be back i'm hoping next week or next couple weeks i'll have my co-host tom back we're gonna start having some people on the cast we're gonna talk about and catch up about all the news that's been going on for the last couple weeks i know i've just been throwing these solo episodes in there just to try and keep content coming out and yes tom will be back uh you guys know what to do um Go ahead. I'm sorry. That's my dog making noise at the door. (laughs) 
Like I said, you know what to do. Tweet at us. Follow us on Instagram. Email us. Whatever you want to do, interact. We love interacting with the fans. Fans, quote unquote. We love interacting with people that listen to our content. And I've gotten some really great feedback about people that have been like, yeah, you have good points, but I also think this. I love that. I love having everything that you guys reply to me is a different way of thinking about something that I never considered. And it just kind of makes me an overall better, better person, better podcast host. So until next time, think about your favorite games. Think about the way they're designed. And we'll catch you guys on the next episode of the Side Questing Podcast.